0: Welcome to Mike Dump with Chirol Podcast, where I'm your host, Brandis Field, And I'm your co-host, Tim Bertelsman. And you're tuning into the one and only evidence-based podcast made by chiropractors and for chiropractors.
1: Here's how it works. We'll have a new clinical topic that we dive into each month, and you'll leave with practical skills that you can apply right away.
0: Well, that's contingent on who's giving the advice, and you'll want to take mine. (laughs) Let's dive in. Welcome to podcast number two. This is Brandon. I'm going to go over exactly what we're going to hear about in the next hour. We're going to really focus on cubital tunnel syndrome. We're going to go through some research articles on how to assess it, how to treat it, and really what's the etiology we should be concerned about. However, the nuts and the bolts are really about those other conditions that masquerade as elbow conditions, one of those being cubital tunnel syndrome. We're also going to go through creating efficiency in your practice through your evaluation. So towards the end of the lecture, we're going to get into that. We're also going to get into other systems that you can use in your office to create more time. Dr. Burleson is going to go through a, a novel way to actually schedule your patients that works for us in our private clinic. At the very end, we're going to cover uh, essentially our quarterly meetings that we use for both Cairo Up. And for this podcast, we're going to talk about Premiere. What are the things that we focus on as a corporation to make sure that our practice thrives in the future? And then we're going to give a couple little tidbits and teasers as far as new things in Cairo Up, some new research, and also a new infographic that you can use for your practice. Can't wait for you to hear this new podcast. Welcome to Mic'd Up with Cairo Up. This is episode
1: podcast number two. I'm your host Tim with the co-host Brandon. We are excited for podcast number two. We got some positive feedback from podcast number one, uh, but we also got some improvements. The marketing department, if you can imagine that, said you guys need to take off your doctor teacher bow ties and hats and lighten up a little bit and entertain. So I, we have this thing here in St. Louis, Google, Dr. Steele told me about a couple of weeks ago. It is cool, and I was able to Google how to lighten up on a podcast. I found this product, and it, uh, I think it's going to catch on. It's been pretty helpful, and I think it'll help us to deliver something good. If you have ideas for our podcast, we'd love to hear them. Otherwise, we're going to get on with it.
0: Uh, I think it's pretty interesting that on podcast number one, I was host. Podcast number two, I'm co-host. I moved down the chain pretty fast, which is interesting because in practice, uh, Tim and I used to practice about a 2 by 4 ball away from each other. And now I'm in the back of the practice about 3,000 square feet away from him um, because I think he got tired of hearing from me.
1: Well, and that's where the lock cell was too, so that helps out. Hey, I had a patient with a facelift, uh, and she asked me how she looked, and I told her I thought her eyebrows were too high, and she looked surprised.
0: Oh, you know, we, we're going to do some dad jokes. And I thought to myself, I really feel bad for Tim because uh, he does have bad ones. He has the, the Google. And I thought to myself, jokes are jokes. However, if I could teach him a lesson. What would the lesson that I would teach him? And then instantly I thought of a high school kid. So these were the, I sent my uh, son uh, five lessons the first five days of high school. I'm going to give you one of them. Uh, one of my favorite lessons. Uh, there's a turkey chatting with a bull. And he said to the bull, I would love to get to the top of that tree, but unfortunately I don't have the energy. And the bull says, well, why don't you just nibble on some of my droppings and they're packed with nutrients that'll help you get to the top of that tree. The turkey stuck, I'm not not sure about uh, eating this, but I'm going to go ahead and do it, and pecked at the lump of dung and and found it gave him a ton of energy, and he was able by the next day to get to the lowest branch of the tree. The next day, after eating some more dung, he reached a second branch, and by the fourth night, the turkey was proudly perched at the top of the tree, where he was promptly spotted by a farmer and shot. Here's the moral of the story, Tim, is that bullshit might get you to the top, but it's not going to keep you there.
1: Very nice. I'm going to write that one down. So a random fact of the day outside of that, of of making sure what we're eating, is a couple of things. Number one is 54% of people with plantar
0: foot pain have a neurologic origin. What's that fact about? Well, we just did the webinar on uh, the differential diagnosis of plantar foot pain, and I was actually surprised. Um, So most of the time you look at someone who steps down first thing in the morning, they have that heel pain, and we think that's pathognomonic with plantar fasciitis. But it's not. 54% of people that have that pain is actually neurologic in origin and not MSK.
1: I love that one. One of the big neurologic ones outside of just a sclerotogenous referral or um, a local irritation is Baxter's neuropathy. That Baxter's neuropathy is irritation to the lateral plantar nerve. And one of the unique features that you can differentiate plantar fasciitis from Baxter's neuropathy is Baxter's comes with weakness of the abductor digity minimi, meaning that that pinky toe can't abduct away from the others. Simple test, patient who's not improving with plantar fasciitis, have them spread their toes. If they can't spread that fifth toe, it's not just plantar fasciitis, they have Baxter's neuropathy. Another interesting random fact of the day, TOS affects the fourth and fifth digit 90% of the time. We often think a TOS is affecting the whole hand when in fact most of the time it's that ulnar distribution. What's up with that?
0: So that's really the, the purpose behind today's podcast, because uh, we'll see patients coming into the office with numbness and tingling in the fourth and fifth digit. And I'm curious, and that's the purpose of the podcast, of the research we put behind it, is what could cause that. you know. So if I look at the differential of numbness and tingling in the fourth and fifth digit, I think to myself, three main diagnoses. And the number one diagnosis we're going to see is radiculopathy. Uh, however, here's what I didn't know, that the C8 nerve is the least commonly encountered cervical reticulopathy. That's kind of interesting to know. I, I didn't know that. Uh, so when we have those problems, uh, it can cause numbness and tingling, but we don't see that very often what are the more common types of um, uh, C8 um, radiculopathies or I'm sorry peripheral neuropathies are the TOS the type diagnoses and also cubital tunnel so our TOS diagnosis that's our uh, clavicular issues that's our pec issues uh, our scalene issues we're going to look at Adson's test clavicular test Wright's test and those are the tests you can find in chiropractic if you go under the TOS section we're going to see uh, the ability to differentiate where that peripheral neuropathy is coming from and a lot of it's the dependent on posture also. Now you can assume that we have a cervical radiculopathy problem going through arm abduction sign, going through the arm squeeze test, and checking all our nerve tension. However, like I said, that's not as common.
1: Yeah, I love that arm abduction sign that that's one of the giveaways that I use in practice is that patients with TOS don't like to hold their arm above their head, whereas somebody who has a cervical radiculopathy often finds that that uh, relief by putting their arm on top of their head. So that's
0: one test that we can use. You know, cubital tunnel is Probably the one that I didn't learn in school. Uh, so back in the '40s, did they teach that uh, about that diagnosis, Doctor? It
1: wasn't invented. We yeah, you know, we
0: were straight armed at that point. It's more four legs, <laughs> um, and this is one that is a touch more difficult to diagnose. And this is when we have irritation of the ulnar nerve at the elbow. However, what we'll use uh, within CHIROP and also in office is going to be the ulnar nerve tension test. Now, for those of you who don't use neurodynamic tests, I think you should learn them. These, these are the tests that you know, we, we show in CHIROP, but also you can learn from the horse's mouth with uh, Michael Shacklock seminars and his book, Clinical Neuro- Neurodynamics, and also the book by uh, David Butler. These are big. So if you can do a test, and we'll go over some orthopedic tests, but if you can do a neurodynamic test, they can reproduce someone's neurologic symptoms with any kind of specific movement. In this case, with elbow flexion irritating uh, the ulnar nerve going into the uh, fourth and fifth digit, that's big and as it turns out with neurodynamics the first joint you move is where you put the most tension across that nerve so what you'll find with these patients having cubital tunnel syndrome is that as they start to bend their elbow they'll get the reproduction of symptoms extending into their elbow um, so this is something we can use in office as an orthopedic test yeah that a lot of things
1: that we don't realize that I didn't recognize that we go through anatomy classes and the nerves look like pieces of beef jerky but those nerves are really dynamic structures they need to glide and they need to stretch much like a bungee cord in a channel anytime that that bungee cord has some sort of entrapment or adhesion or irritation there's going to be excessive stretch right at that spot and the ulnar nerve needs to stretch half a centimeter just by flexing your elbow if there's some irritation at the medial epicondyle or somewhere in the forearm that's going to create excessive stretch and nerves don't
0: like stretch but interestingly enough they have to and that's something that I think a lot of us skip over or you're going to use a pun, floss over in school, is that muscles and bones and tendons, they all move, right? Um, But so do nerves. They have to slide between muscles. They have to go around bones and they have to move just as much as everything else. And we forget about that. So someone with a nerve symptom, don't forget about making sure that nerve is moving. So, to kind of answer this question as far as a differential diagnosis of someone with numbness and tingling in the fourth and fifth digit, I do want to dive into one article. Uh, and this article is from this year, and I want to go through um, really how to make a diagnosis of cubital tunnel syndrome and some some facts surrounding cubital tunnel syndrome uh, that we can all hopefully take into the the, the, the treatment room uh, to help our patients.
1: Yeah, before we get into that study, I did see a study on uh, the most depressing day of the week. And it uh, a lot of people think that it's Sunday, uh, but I, I really think the day before is a Saturday.
0: I don't even know what to say about that. I think we need to rethink this whole dad jokes thing throughout the the seminar. There will be some fines, (laughs) yeah. I can see the fine box filling. (laughs) Um, So we have a a paper from our friends at Experimental Therapeutic Medicine, April 19th. It's on conservative therapy and ulnar neuropathy at the elbow. And there are four things that I want to go through because I think that if we can understand cubital tunnel syndrome a touch better, than we can help that specific population. And cubital syndrome is one of the major uh, neuropathies affecting the upper extremity. In fact, it's the second most frequent entrapment syndrome of the upper limb. And we can all guess what the first one is. Um, is it it it's on the hand? I think <laughs> carpal tunnel syndrome, right? Um, so how do we make this diagnosis? And we're going to do it through signs and symptoms. Now, can we do EMG and CV studies? Absolutely. You know that's going to always be your gold standard but probably not necessary for the vast majority of our patients. These are gonna be our patients where we start to see not local pain, we're going to see a radiation of paresthesia, radiation of numbness or tingling going down into the arm and possibly motor loss. We're not going to see motor loss with the vast majority of our patients, only if it's a significant compression or it's been sustained for a long period of time. That sustained pressure is what's going to drive our decision-making process, though, because we have some patients that have repetitive elbow flexion. Uh, Maybe they're a carpenter and swinging a hammer. Maybe they're doing a sport with uh, picking their arms up. Or we have external pressure on that um, that ulnar nerve. Those are our patients who are driving a long period of time where they have pressure on the elbow or they have to maintain a certain pressure on the elbow they have to really hold their phone up to make text messages 12 hours a day which is a necessary part of life and they're going to create their own cubital tunnel syndrome so really what we need to do is to figure out what's causing that problem and if we can do that then we can significantly help people get out of pain Uh, with cubital tunnel syndrome, the next fact is we have to use patient education and ADL modification. And let me explain why. Uh, It's because unfortunately, the more you bend your elbow, if we call 90 degrees, if you go past 90 degrees, so you have more and more flexion of your elbow, that tensions that nerve. That nerve is already irritated. So sometimes we can use a nighttime splint that prevents elbow flexion. People don't know what they're doing when they're sleeping, so using a a splint will significantly help symptoms. And I found a paper by uh, Shaw, I believe this was in 2013, it's an older paper, but just by giving people the nighttime splint and telling them about bending their elbow, uh, they had 88% improvement in symptoms and it persisted for two years. That's big, it's a huge cost though. These, These splints are very expensive and they're tough to get. We do have a service. We're in the St. Louis area. It's called Amazon. And Amazon can deliver it within two days to your office at a whopping $20. Um, you can probably find a better splint. But realistically, you're looking for something similar to duct tape. Prevent the person from moving their elbow. Uh, and it will significantly help them. Um, so we can do all the treatments we do in our office, which is, of course, myofascial release, nerve flossing, all the things that we can do. But unfortunately, if they go home and they keep their elbow bent for long periods of time, Uh, we're kind of peeing in the wind at that point uh, because unfortunately they're creating their own problem. Uh, So I think that's something that we should all be considering. So here's the two conditions. Now this is something that I I 100% did not know until putting this this podcast together. Is that there's two different types of conditions that create cubital tunnel syndrome. The first condition affects about 15% of a patient, and then the second condition is 85%. And there's a huge difference. So here's the difference. First condition, the lesser, the 15%, they actually have entrapment of the ulnar nerve that is distal to the elbow and that's where the muscles are Uh, because unfortunately we get uh, repetitive activity and there's an aponeurosis and too much activity as far as pronation supination flexion extension uh, is causing um, irritation and thickening of this aponeurosis and unfortunately that is causing the compression and what they found from the uh, from the papers is that surgery is actually the therapy of choice now of course we can do uh, conservative measures we can do nerve flossing nerve release and check those things out in Cairo. If you look at the nerve release uh, of any nerve, we have those videotaped in there. So please look at that. That's always the first first option. Uh, However, those patients are more difficult to go away. And the reason is not because we're not affected. The reason is because that person has to work. They have to keep on doing whatever that activity was, whether it's a hobby, a habit, a sport. Um, So they are a little more difficult to go away. The second condition, which I did not know even existed, nor is the more common of the two conditions, is compression of the ulnar nerve that is proximal to the medial uh, um, epicondyle, about four centimeters proximal. And this is not due to an anatomic constriction. In fact, this is just due to nerve tension. You get external compression. Uh, I mean, you can get external compression due to maybe putting your arm on a hard surface, but this is due to actually forearm pronation. If you can imagine someone with their elbows bent in typing that puts tension on the ulnar nerve and unfortunately they type the next day in fact they type on monday tuesday wednesday thursday friday and that's their job and they keep on tensioning that nerve so unfortunately that elbow flexion and compression of the ulnar nerve along the humerus creates cubital tunnel syndrome. And so changing the workstation ergonomics is going to be pivotal as far as taking that compression away and of course doing some ulnar nerve flossing. And that's really what this is about, is that about differentiating what should I be attacking? Should I be attacking more of the musculoskeletal condition when the the compression is distal to the elbow, or should I be working on more of uh, the posture and the habits and the uh, positions of the body with the second condition? And that's the beauty of orthopedic testing. And please, please go into, uh, go back into Car up and check out all the orthopedic exams. However, there's a really cool orthopedic exam for this one. Poke on it. Where is it sore? Is it above or below the elbow? Sometimes it's that easy.
1: Yeah, I love that, and I love the synopsis. In fact, while you were speaking, I was dozing off, so I dropped into Cairo, looked at the cubital tunnel protocol, and um it just exactly what you had said that numbness and tingling in that fourth and fifth digit we know that the ulnar nerve is probably involved whether that be centrally or distally one thing to rec- remember is that a lot of these peripheral neuropathies are double or multi crush syndromes so that yes there's some irritation at the neck there's some tos involved there's some tightness at the, in the wrist flexors or extensors and then there's some peripheral neuropathy as well so looking at all of those sources trying to eliminate as many as possible our poke on it test is a great test for peripheral neuropathies, that those nerves don't like to be excessively smashed or excessively stretched. So a Tinel sign of tapping it with a hammer or just put your thumb on it. And does the compression seem to generate more irritation, proximal or distal to the elbow? And then what do we do for that patient? We're going to use a nerve release. We're going to do nerve flossing. And at nighttime, if they're getting those symptoms, because they're stretching that nerve all night long if, they're, if their wrist is Flexed in a fetal position and their elbow is flexed in a fetal position, a lot of tension on the ulnar nerve, and it doesn't like that. There's a lot of fancy names for that, but I love what you said the poke on it that all of these orthopedic tests that are uh, outlined in our books and in Cairo Up. By the way, do you know how many orthopedic tests we have in Cairo Up, Dr. Steele? How many orthopedic evaluations are defined with the descriptions and the the
0: differential for that test? I should know this since obviously we do the videotaping of it.
1: Um, 250. You were close, but off by about 170. (laughs) uh, Almost 70. 322 tests that we have is orthopedic assessments. And they all have names that you had to remember for national boards. But fortunately in practice, those orthopedic tests that define structural lesions, we really don't need to remember their names. We just need to remember what they do. That all of those tests do one of a few things that I like to to tell the story that, you know, initially we had Zog, the caveman, and Zog decided he's going to be the doctor. So he'd take his club and he'd smack people with his club and they felt better. He'd hit them on the back, he'd hit them on the wrist, whatever was hurting, and all of a sudden they started healing. And then all the other cave people decided, we're going to do the same. And they started hitting people and Zog said, you know what? You're infringing on my monopoly. I need to do something different. So first we're going to do orthopedic tests. So Zog started taking the small end of his club and he started poking on people and started stretching stuff. And he called those orthopedic tests and then the other cave boys and girls caught on quickly and they said, well, we can do that as well. And Zog realized, I need to do something that puts this at a whole new level that not everybody can do. So he named all of these tests, like Rue's test, and Paxino's test, and Finkelstein's test, which is basically taking your club and sticking it in somebody's sacroiliac joint and saying, is that uncomfortable? And that scared everybody off, and he was able to create his monopoly and move that all the way to where we have it today. But what, it, what really boils down to is that all of those things Zog does with his club is one of three things he either pushes on a structure, he pulls on a structure, or he makes it work. And when you think of neurologic tests, all of those really apply the first two because nerves and tendons don't like excessive stretch and they don't like excessive compression, both of which cause ischemia. Ischemia causes pain and it causes neurologic signs and symptoms. So next time that you're thinking about an orthopedic test and thinking, what's the name of that and how do I do that? Just think about the structure that you're trying to assess and either push on it pull it or make it work. And chances are you'll have one of those 322 tests.
0: And for those of you who know, Tim and I, we do teach for the diplomat orthopedics program. So we do love orthopedics. However, uh, I think that the reason, at least I, I want to speak for you, Tim, love orthopedics is the creativity. That doing a test and saying it's positive or negative would, would bore the crap out of me. However, when you can do one test and you can elicit symptoms, and then decide on the next test. That's when things get interesting. We put out a blog last week on a Faber test, one test, but based on the symptoms, you can actually uh, differentiate where the problem is coming from. But as we know, one test does not equal one diagnosis. It's normally a clinical prediction rule of many tests in order to make that specific diagnosis. So once, we, you, once you and, and I and, and all of our um, uh, clinicians out there start to get good at those patterns and understanding what tests to do next, you can take an orthopedic exam learned in school, which took 15 minutes and 37 tests and turn it into five tests. that takes under a minute and come up with the right diagnosis. And you know what? That creativity just makes practice fun.
1: Yeah. Hey, speaking of boring the crap out of people, when are you going to Oklahoma to uh, to teach oh. their diplomate class?
0: Tim, if there's one thing you should know about me... Um, I don't so me and my calendar don't get along the calendar is always up on my computer but I don't I think it's the second week of of December but uh, it's funny because whenever I go to a seminar um, I'll get on a plane to go somewhere and then and then when I get off the plane then I look where I'm going and it's interesting because whenever Tim travels he has his entire itinerary and how he's getting a certain place at certain times and uh, and I just hope I make it back to practice on Monday (laughs) which often you do So management-wise,
1: um, we've got a lot of options for somebody who has a neuropathy, who has a
0: tendinopathy. Um, what are, what are some of the things that we need to think about? So, you know, diving right back into the cubicle tunnel syndrome, as far as the management, the last four facts, what I, I love about that is what should we be thinking about? Because unfortunately your patient is thinking about something different than you're thinking about. Your patient is thinking about how to get out of pain as fast as possible. And what I'm thinking about is how can I one, get you out of pain to keep you happy, to keep you understand your condition and coming back to my office for, for care, But also, what's causing this, you know? And uh, there's a dichotomy there, because unfortunately, some patients will go directly into corticosteroids or medications. And what we learned from that paper, from the cubital tunnel syndrome paper, is stop injecting these patients. Yes, you can calm down the inflammation, but it is not attacking the cause. For those patients that have compression due to their uh, position or posture, and, and a corticosteroid doesn't fix that. So make sure we put on our Sherlock Holmes hat and fix the actual problem versus just injecting it. And then the other part of that paper was to highlight the importance of neurodynamics in treatment. Uh, please, uh, you, every single person that's listening to this, both of you, probably understand that when we see as, as chiros, mostly musculoskeletal problems that result in nerve problems, if there is a tool that you can use to help desensitize and take pain away from those nerves, we should be using it. And nerve flossing works well, so when it comes to cubital tunnel syndrome, we use the ulnar nerve floss. In fact, you guys can do that right now sitting here. Take your um, index finger and your thumb and put them together, and then pretend like you're gonna shake someone's hand. So keeping your index uh, finger and thumb together, try to shake someone's hand, and now slowly bring that hand up to your head while bending your elbow and try to look through the index finger and thumb uh, and make a monocle on your hand. If you haven't seen this before, check it out in Carpal as far as the ulnar nerve loss. But what you're trying to do is to look through that circle you're creating, but in the opposite side while you're making a monocle. Um, and you'll feel that numbness and tingling going into the um, fourth and fifth digit. Those patients that have cubal tunnel syndrome, they don't get anywhere even near their face they're halfway up their elbows only 90 degrees and they start to feel numbness and tingling going into their fourth and fifth digit so please check uh, ch- check out neurodynamics as far as your evaluation and also your treatment with these patients It'd be easier to
1: play Twister
0: than to follow that description.
1: Holy cow! Do you have a was, better description? What, yeah, go to Cairo up and check out the uh, <laughs> the ulnar nerve loss. It is particularly simple for patients, and watching a demo is a whole lot easier than describing it. But uh, fortunately, you can follow up on that one. So, any any cases uh, that were interesting this past month for you?
0: Yes, and it was the most difficult case of my entire life because it was my wife. So she is a runner. She runs three to 10 miles on a, a not a daily basis she takes uh, breaks in there however you could she chase had, her that long yeah she had numbness and tingling sending into her hands um and of course uh, me putting my hat on and being blind to everything that she does because she's my wife and she just wants to be fixed immediately usually about five minutes before i'm going to bed Um, And she had numbness and tingling going in her hand. She's never had that before. She just got back into running. And I do the best orthopedic exam you've ever seen in your life. I did the best nerve flossing you've ever seen. Manipulation, top notch. She didn't get better. Not only did she not get better that day, over the next three weeks, she's continued to not get better. It was not until I kind of removed myself from the situation working with a patient in office that I realized her running. Um, is that I didn't look at her running. And she has one of those gates where her arms are bent, not at 90 degrees, but her elbows are bent at you know, 150 degrees when she runs. She is creating her own problem. It does not matter how I treat her. If she creates that problem on a daily basis, I'm not going to fix her. So once we fix that and also put her in that uh, that real expensive Amazon brace that cost 20 bucks, um, significantly helps symptoms. Uh, in all honesty, it didn't go right away. It probably still took another maybe 10 to 14 days before those symptoms started to dissipate, but now they're gone. They're staying gone. And now I have a happy wife, happy life. <laughs> <laughs>
1: good, uh, good lesson for all of us to learn from. Any other favorite exercises, favorite favorite ADLs? You've talked about the braces, uh, talked about uh, some of the nerve flossing things that you do. Any other tidbits before we wrap up TOS?
0: We uh, yeah, have for, for TOS. Uh, as far as cubital tunnel syndrome, I think we covered everything. I think TOS will kind of do the same, you know, TOS, ulnar nerve. We're gonna do those ulnar nerve flossing. We're gonna be going through uh, a lot of the same structures once we do right uh, hyperabduction and costoclavicular maneuver, trying to figure out which site that peripheral neuropathy is coming from. Uh, I'll tell you what, for TOS, I'm, I'm glad you brought that up. Um, check out the um, uh, corner pec stretch by far my favorite stretch and we use it for upper cross syndrome and scapular dyskinesis so much which is fine that's good that's that's what we need it for however that stretch really will help those patients with tos uh, one caveat to that, and the video is correct, however, we don't emphasize it like we probably should, is having the arms up elevated, abducted at 90 degrees. Don't let that patient pick their arm up too far on the wall. If they do that, they can create a lot of extra stretch on the ulnar nerve. So keeping that arm down to 90 degrees abduction or less, uh, I think goes, goes a significant um, way as far as decreasing symptoms. So clinically... You know, Keber tunnel syndrome, TOS, C8 radiculopathy, that's kind of the focus behind today's podcast. And, and hopefully that paper shed a little bit of light in the facts surrounding that peripheral neuropathy and less around the, the opinions, even though we do incorporate our opinions frequently throughout the podcast. I think the harder thing to do is to take those things and plug those into your practice. Because the most important thing to do is to uh, evaluate patients, provide the right care at the right time, Uh, to help our patients get out of pain Uh, and then make sure they come back and and making sure that people um, understand their condition as well as you do. Patients don't come back to your office because they don't understand that why they have to. It wasn't because you were good or you were bad. It just means that they didn't understand why they need to come back. If you want to increase compliance of your patients and adherence to care, uh, it all starts with patient education. And then if you can uh, have a patient understand their condition well as you do and understand their uh, their responsibilities and your responsibilities, we can really start to scale our practice and with a clinical mindset. Yeah, which is which is interesting, because when I first started practice, I would see four patients an hour, two patients an hour. Um, and now, uh, unfortunately, um, I have more patients than I have time. Um, and we have to you have to hire an associate at that point. You have to find other people that can um, to solve those problems. And that comes down to systems is having the right systems in place. To make sure that you can handle that workload, and um, I think that's what Dr. Burlesman has been a master at since starting practice with him, is uh, you know creating those systems in your office to automate, to delegate, to eliminate um, things you should be doing, and obviously as a practicing uh, evidence-based chiropractor, we should be doing, but also recognizing things that we shouldn't be doing. And one of the most interesting things that I learned from uh, Tim at the very beginning of our uh, our relationship together was scheduling. So I do want, I know this is a little off topic for this podcast, uh, Tim, but... I, I really love the way we schedule at uh, Premier Rehab, our clinic. Can you explain how we do that?
1: Yeah, absolutely. That uh, I I like what you're talking about. That it's you know when we start practice, we have more time than we do have patients. And then as you incorporate those systems, and you've got the right product and the right people in place, the right processes, all of a sudden you have more patients then you have time and and then uh, that turns into a challenge because you're turning business away that patients can't get in and that creates a whole new subset of pro- problems One of the things that we do is a scheduling point system that we assign a point level to each patient. If you're a young, simple patient who's going to, and I say young attitude is what I should say. No, not you. Um, (laughs) Somebody who's going to present their case pretty quickly, and it's a repeat visit, and you've got one problem, you get one point. If you're somebody who may have multiple problems or you don't explain things quite as quickly, then we're going to give you two points. And if you're a new patient or somebody who's particularly uh, challenging, then you get three points. And then we each come up with a points per hour that all the providers in our office each have a different points level. Um, and we're able to schedule then knowing that we can handle X points per hour, that if we have a bunch of simple patients, we can handle several. If we have a couple of complex patients, that may be it. So that point system really prevents us from falling too far behind. The other thing is making sure that our visits are efficient, that we don't fall too far behind. It's, it's not overly challenging to find more capacity in your waiting room, or in your therapy area, in your rehab area, in your computer system. What is challenging is to find more capacity in the doctor's office, that that's really the bottleneck for all practices. So constantly looking for ways to transition from that early practice model, where you're doing everything yourself, into doing just what you need to be doing. That means automating, eliminating, and delegating everything. And while that may only save a few seconds or a minute for a visit, that adds up. If we can just save 20 seconds per visit, the average provider is going to make substantially more money, like 40 to $50,000 more a year, simply by eliminating a few seconds per visit. What can you automate? Can you automate the way that you send out exercises or MD reports? Can you eliminate processes? Do you really need your phone in the room to take a peek at social media? And can you delegate anything? Can you have people trained to perform therapy, to do the rehab exercise? to perform the x-rays in your office. And obviously that's dependent upon your local and, and state regulations as to what can be delegated. But if you can, anything that can be delegated that doesn't require your level of expertise frees you up to deliver what you are good at. The other tip that I would give is that when you're you're running behind, talk slow and work fast. By working fast, meaning do things that that are going to be most efficient. We don't need to do everything that we know for that patient. We need to do what it takes to tip that in the right direction. And then most importantly, empower that patient to take over on their own. Make them responsible for their recovery. But when we're in a rush and the patient can see that we have six people waiting for us and you're talking fast, they feel instantly like they've been neglected. Just talk slow. And if you talk slow, that patient recognizes, okay, he, he, this provider is giving me the time that that, uh, that I deserve.
0: And those are the biggest things. I, can you just, I know we, you just went through a lot of it, but the business hand, and the clinical hand. That's something that I, I think spoke volumes to me when I first met you.
1: Yeah, that's a a challenge because those of us in private practice do have those two hands that clearly we have a clinical hand that we've been taught for three and a half years how to deliver. And then we have a business hand that we've been taught about three and a half minutes how to deliver. So we scramble for ways to make sure that we stay in business. And sometimes that impacts our clinical hand. Anytime that that we see that that patient is a source of revenue for us, as opposed to our opportunity to help them, things start going south. So we need to keep both hands in mind. You can't forget about business and stay in business, but you certainly can't forget about the clinical. We always just need to make sure that the clinical hand always trumps the business hand. Um, and, And one of the ways that we do that is by making sure that our goals stay on track, that we just wrapped up our Q4 meeting here. Um, that we have uh, weekly meetings at at Cairo at uh, Premier Rehab and at Cairo up as far as that goes. And those weekly meetings, we'll meet with the team. But the admin team, the providers, and the office manager get together on a quarterly basis. So at the beginning of the year, we'll define our goals. Um, and then each quarter we'll sit down and say okay how did we do last quarter and what are we going to do this upcoming quarter it really makes sure that we're working um, on the practice as opposed to just working in the practice that all of us whether it be the receptionist the office manager or one of the providers is is seeing patients and doing their daily tasks and at the end of the day we need to make sure that we got done more than just working in the practice that we're pursuing our dreams that that we're not just driving but we're driving toward a destination and that's what our goals are we need to set those out clearly in in the beginning of the year what are the one-year goals and how do that how does that uh, follow with your long-term objectives and then each day and each month and each quarter measure that are you we're climbing a ladder all day long are we climbing the right ladder so that when we have all that work done at the end of the month or at the end of the year did we get to the rooftop that we want are we on a rooftop that we said out we climbed a ladder but we didn't get anywhere and the only way we do that is by measuring and refining it so the things that we set up for our goals were number one outcomes that what can we do to improve our clinical outcomes? Because the better the product, the easier it is to sell. One thing that I've found through the years, through our subscribers and through personal- Many years. (laughs) Through personal experience, is pick the right partners, first of all. I messed that one up. But there's no turning back at this point in time. So uh, number one is making sure that we're focusing on the outcomes for the patient that there are ways that we can get better there are things that we can do none of us have all of those answers and the one thing that I've learned is that the quicker that we can resolve a problem the busier that will be if you had a product that resolved your patients problem in one visit you would be the busiest provider on earth and if you provided that same solution but it took a hundred visits you'd be a pretty slow provider well there's no magic turning point that all of a sudden when you get to five or four or three or two visits that it changes that recipe The faster that we can get patients better, the busier our practice and the more interesting because you get to see more things and the more rewarding because we don't have as many of those down days. The outcomes are crucial. So we said, can we get 1.5% better in our outcomes this year? We measure that through Up, It makes it simple so we can
0: see what our outcomes are now and where we want them to go. Can I interject one? Uh, So we work a lot with associations and so. Uh, practicing providers that are struggling a little bit, I'll get one common question when I do a consultation with them, and that is how can I see patients or how, how can I see more patients or how can I treat them faster? And very quickly, I'll refer them back to, you need to evaluate them faster, not treat them faster. Because if we do the right evaluation, we can avoid doing treatments that are just wasting your time and the patient's time. So I think that's where things start, making sure we have a solid clinical prediction rule for every single diagnosis using only the most specific and sensitive tests to make sure we're climbing the right ladder, in this case, with the right patient. Yeah, great, great advice.
1: Um, and then that leads to office visits. It's certainly having the right product is a whole lot easier to sell. You can't get better at selling a crummy product, but you can improve your product. So we focus on our product. We'll also focus on the process by which we del- that that we deliver that product and the, the way that we market those outcomes. Because if, even if you have great outcomes, you still need to let people know. And we've recognized through the years, as many people have, that a marketing plan doesn't need to have 27 points to it. It needs to have one or two or three things that are really going to make a difference. By far, the biggest things that have made a difference for our practice is marketing to medical physicians, patient referrals, and then reactivations as well. So we've decided since we want something different, we have an associate that we're trying to fill their schedule even more than than what they are now. And that's as as you and uh, those of you new in practice realize that's not easy. Fortunately, it's a little easier if you have a few other providers that are fueling that. But we still need to do things differently if we want a different outcome. So we're going back out for MD lunches that's something that was kind of put on hold through covid now's a good time most providers are willing to have lunches once again we're going to start our md marketing program which consists of three things number one sending out an initial report number two sending out a release report and number three every now and then like every six months going in and saying hi I'm Dr. Smith, I practice down the street, here are my outcomes. We take, the, take our laptops with us so that they can see our clinical outcomes and we get referrals about 300 a year from that campaign. The other thing that works is patient referrals. So we're going to make sure that we're asking patients, letting them know that, no, we're not too busy because patients think that you're too busy, that you're going to displace them if they refer someone in to let them know, no, we do have opportunity for you to be seen. And also reactivations to help fill up uh, schedules, in this case, the associate schedule, but Patients who haven't been in in a while, just sending out a, a card, letting them know we're here for you, and then following that up with a call. A card works okay. You'll get maybe 1% return, but you'll get 5 to 6% return if you start making calls saying, hey, would you like to come in to have things checked out once again? And then the last thing that we did uh, was said we're going to spruce up the office a little bit. Uh, So we did a five census survey, meaning the whole staff walked around every room and made notes as to what could be done to make this look better, to uh, be more appealing, to be more user-friendly, and we'll start plucking those off. And we're excited about that. Q4 is naturally a bigger uh, quarter. It's usually one of the biggest quarters for everyone. Yes, there are some down months in there at the end of December, uh, but there's still some really big months uh, that that happen. So if you're saying, yes, I would like to build up my practice, I'd give you a little bit of homework. Number one, write down your dreams. What are you looking for? Because if it's not written down, it probably is not going to happen. Make sure that they're smart, which means that they're specific and measurable and attainable and realistic. And realistic means you're not going to grow by more than 10% or so per month. To say that I'm going to triple my practice unless you're brand new is probably not realistic. And also make sure that they're realistic as far as something that would make your patient proud because patients see our unspoken motives and they vote with their feet. If you want a busier practice, deliver a product that patients are really proud of. And the other homework piece is to schedule a rainmaker time that if you're working too hard and say, I have no time to get away from my practice, realize that you're solely working in your practice, not on your
0: practice and things aren't going to grow. You know, two quotes that came to mind when you're talking about that is that uh, and I've just always had this in my head, is persistence matters more than talent. It takes passion. That if you're not passionate about what you do, things are going to die pretty fast. You went through school, you're doing what you do. Obviously, there has to be some kind of passion and interest there. Um, and the last part is be honest with your intentions. That To think to yourself, you really want to just get 100 a, a new patients next month. Be honest with yourself um, and say, I'm going to do these three things. Maybe it's MD marketing, maybe it's reactivations, and I'm probably going to get 20 because otherwise you're going to be upset with yourself. So to round out today's lecture, uh, lecture, I, we, we do too much seminars, talk, uh, podcast. It's, it's, to be honest with you, it's kind of foreign to me, You know, talking in front of a, a microphone versus um, a group of people. Um, I wanted to bring up a couple of things that are new in Cairo Up. I mean, I, obviously, we're putting in new research articles. We have four full-time Cairo's working all the time to get new research into Cairo Up. Anything that's a new exam, new exercise, new piece of information, or in this case, infographics, we're going to uh, turn those in, things into reality for you to use in practice. There is a new pregnancy infographic about how to nurse, Nurse comfortably, something that I've never done before. So fortunately, uh, we have some uh, some experts in our uh, profession, uh, Erica Minerick and uh, Lindsay Muma. Uh, Lindsay, I, I hope you listen to this podcast. It was great to meet you in Vegas a couple months ago, uh, and also P- uh, HealthCom, you know, the app that our. Our, uh, our software is running on for our patients to educate them on their condition and to see other videos, uh, it had a refresh and it's now going to allow new functionality moving forward. Uh, a new stuff in Kyrop, not necessarily new stuff, but new people, we actually expanded our coding team. So we have big hopes and dreams uh, and these hopes and dreams now have a timeline which make it now a goal um, so we have some fun things coming out in the next year uh, They require a big coding team um, and some uh, some big thoughts and some big dreams in the profession to, to solve problems for our chiropractors around the world
1: Yeah, and the most important lesson is I think this loosening juice may actually catch on. I think that it'd be popular in bars, uh, maybe college campuses, that sort of thing. So hopefully you've been able to leave with something that you didn't have before this podcast. I know that we uh, always enjoy connecting with our listeners. We appreciate you listening. We know that your time is very valuable. We hope that you'll check out the next, next episode. We have another couple of conditions with some information to cover, as well as some systems and strategies that we've used to scale the tools, the software tools. Uh, that we use to implement something called an EOS system. I think that you'll find that that useful. Uh,
0: in, in closing, please give us feedback. Uh, my email you want mine? is Brandon, B-R-A-N-D-O-N, at uh, CairoUp.com. And then if you have a complaint, uh, it's Tim, T-I-M, at CairoUp.com. And really, this podcast is just us talking on a Friday. Uh, It's it's more of a personal way of us to connect with our subscribers. Um, So if you have questions, we'd love to connect with you Um, and and maybe get back to you with how we solve that problem uh, in our practice or maybe how the research has solved that problem. Um, But yeah, uh, thanks for listening and uh, hopefully listen to the next one. See you next time.